Welcome to the Global Marketing Show, the podcast for all things international business. I'm your host, Wendy Pease, president of Rapport International and a translation expert. Come along with me today as we talk to an expert in the global marketing world about facing their biggest fears, hearing about mistakes they made or saw, discussing best practices, and sharing fun travel language and culture stories. So hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Global Marketing Podcast. Today, I'm very excited to welcome a fellow Penn Stater. It's Bill Tung. Yay. And he is a global marketing expert on apparel and footwear. He's had 30 years of experience. Um, and he admits that you learn more about your mistakes than you do from your successes. So we'll get into that. Hi, Bill. How are you? Good afternoon to you and greetings from Brookline. I'm well, thank you. Cold, snow. Right. Brookline, Massachusetts, near Boston. So we just got snow too. I'm right out near you. Yeah. So so tell me, 30 years in the apparel and footwear and you were Vice President of International at New Balance, Vice President of International Sales at Columbia. I mean, you've had some pretty, pretty big positions. Tell me, like, one thing that made those companies successful in taking their products international. Luck? No, I'm just kidding. Let's into it. Great products to begin with. Uh, excellent operations because I think sometimes we look at it oh it's a great product it's a cool product it, it markets well but you know there are a lot of companies that have great products but uh, are failing or not very developed on the operations customer service planning side of the business uh, sometimes we in the trade we call that you know the back end of the business but you know if you don't have that you know it doesn't matter how good your product is uh, to go to the market so I think it's a combination of having you know, great products, uh, but also supported by an engine uh, to support uh, going to market. Now, that's fascinating. Okay, so if you have great products and you're going to sell in the domestic markets, you may not, I mean, your operations and your service have to be good enough, but it's going to flop going internationally. Yeah, absolutely. So it starts from, you know, either the, the, the board or the C-suite, you know, it, it, are they committed to doing what's necessary to support an international business, um, you know, whether that is setting up subsidiaries around the world or joint ventures or finding third-party distributor partners, agents, licensees. Uh, so you, you pick your path uh, based on your resources and your strategic plan, but then how are you going to support that? And um, so certainly you've got varying degrees of that um, and certainly for smaller brands, it's difficult because they, they lack resources uh, to do so. Um, but, you know, e- even companies that are very large, um, billions of dollars, they have very limited uh, revenue outside of the United States just because it hasn't been part of their strategic plan or they haven't given it much thought, which is kind of odd uh, given the circumstances of today of uh, many, many brands uh, suffering and having too many eggs in one basket uh, selling here just in the United States. Yeah. So the companies you went with, did, were they already doing international or did they bring you in to guide it? So, you know, because what I want to try to understand is who goes international and who doesn't? And is it, and did you kind of develop into those roles or did they consciously hire you? Uh, yeah, when I, if I go back to my Reebok days when I was based in Hong Kong, I, I was uh, brought on board to launch uh, one of their subsidiary brands called Rockport that's based here in Boston. Oh, great uh, brand, they, yeah. They didn't have much of an international presence, uh, hardly any in Asia Pac. So I was based in Hong Kong. So certainly my role was to uh, you know, find subsidiaries, open distributors. I mean, back in those days, it was all about wholesale and opening uh, retail stores, and I'm talking. This is the, in the mid '90s here, um, and uh, so yeah, I was brought on board to uh, expand the uh, the uh, the business into a new region, into the Asia Pacific region. When I joined Columbia Sportswear, it, they they had an international presence. It, it was uh, just about 20% uh, of of the total business. Um, so they had a few. They were operating in a few markets around the world, but um, you know, places like China and India and Brazil and South Africa and other markets that they had not uh, 
gone into yet. So certainly uh, part of my remit was uh, uh, certainly uh, bringing the brand into uh, new, new markets. So yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, so both of them had the vision from the top that said, yes, yeah. we want to go international. Correct. They saw that as a, as a major opportunity for growth. And, and at New Balance, when I arrived at New Balance, they were already quite well established around the world. Probably half their business uh, was generated outside the United States. And how does a company make a decision? Like at what point in their development would you advise companies from what you've seen to decide to go international? Yeah, that's interesting, uh, Wendy. What I've seen, is a lot of companies will kind of make this pretty basic uh, mistake, if you will, is, you know, somebody contacts them from Belgium or India or Singapore or China or Brazil and say, hey, we're very interested to bring your product or represent your brand uh, in our market. And, you know, for those companies that don't have the resources or didn't have a strategy, they, they usually just uh, partner up with uh, the first one that comes knocking. Uh, and, and so that company may or may not be the best choice. You know, you don't have the resources of, of send, sending somebody to go actually meet uh, and vet. I've seen many mistakes around the world of, of big brands going with partners uh, that was not a good match. And how did that happen? They were the first one to ask. So. Yeah, um, there's an industry term for that now. It's called an accidental exporter, where you don't have a plan, you don't have a strategy, someone comes knocking, you go, okay, let's do it. And, yeah, and, and it can, go, an, go ahead. Absolutely, you know, and you're just, you know, if you don't have an international business or a, a nascent one and somebody knocks on your door from Taiwan or Brazil, you're just thrilled because somebody wants to engage in business with you. So, it, uh, and so hey, that made life easy. Well, yes, but uh, maybe that wasn't the right uh, point. Okay, so that's oftentimes the entry point where a company will get a call and they'll say, oh, what the heck, we might as well do it. So how do you change that mindset for companies to say there's this huge opportunity and it's not just for the New Balances or the Rockports or Columbia's, the big brands that are already known, but they probably got well known because they went international. Yeah, it's, it, it starts from the top of the organization. And, you know, I, I've seen companies where, you know, the, the head of U.S. sales uh, or, or sales rep even in the United States all of a sudden uh, is said, right, uh, this is now your responsibility in selling to uh, other markets around the world. It's an entirely different ballgame, you know, how, how you sell to Foot Locker and Dick's Sporting Goods and REI and Macy's here in the United States. Well, you don't have that same, well, obviously, you don't have those same customers overseas, but it's a whole different go-to-market approach. Um, you know, some, some countries, it's very much online business. Some countries, there's no wholesale business. Some oh, wait, 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 time out. You got to break it down. <laughs> Give me the nuts and bolts on the countries. Tell me what would be most different from the U.S. or what's unique. Sure. Absolutely. So, so if you, let's just take China, for example. You know, in, in China, it's all about the online business today. You know, whether you're on Alibaba, Tmall, JD.com. So uh, listening to that directly. Uh, but if you want to have a brick and mortar strategy of having actual stores, um, then, you know, you need to set up those retail stores yourself uh, or you need to find a partner to do so. Um, but the old school way of doing business of selling or wholesaling to a department store or a retailer doesn't exist in China. You, you need, you know, there are department stores, some of the most beautiful department stores in the world in China, but you don't sell to them. And so, well, how do, how do all those brands do business in that department store? Well, you need to lease space within that store uh, and uh, to set up a shop and shop. Uh, so either you do that yourself or you find a local partner to do that for you. So, you know, an American brand that goes into China and says, well, right, we want to wholesale to all these department stores. Well, that's nice. They don't buy from you. You need to lease that space uh, yourself, set up that fixturing, and uh, you, do that, you do the sales. Those, those department stores act like landlords. That's fascinating to me. So it's a different model than even a distributor because a distributor is – going out and selling to the people who are going to sell, but this is, you just need to have somebody to man the booth. 
<laughs> well, right. Yeah, you, yeah. Somebody needs to sign a lease in the department for the with the department store for so many square meters uh, for the space on one, whichever floor that's appropriate for your product. Uh, and it's no, no different that if you're setting up a shop on on a on a high uh, on a high street or in a shopping mall, you sign a lease with the department store owners. So back as landlords. So. Um, so, you know, you can go into your strategy. Well, this worked really well for us in the United States. We've been wholesalers and we're going to do it this way and we'll do the same thing in China. Well, no, it, it, that just doesn't really, uh, I, that, that's not where uh, the, the right path is. Find a partner that would be able to help you do that because that's not just one department store. You're talking all the department stores across all the different cities. Yeah, well, Wendy, I think like with any international division, you need to bring on, you need to hire people who have been there and done that. So you go off and hire the talent. And what I've seen for those companies that, and it's no disrespect to anybody, but you, you, to take a U.S. sales rep uh, that's just been selling in the United States or your national sales uh, manager here in the United States and just ask them to start flying around the world. Well, why do that? You can, there's plenty of not plenty, but there's certainly talent out there uh, and experienced professionals that you can hire that uh, understand uh, the intricacies and the complexities of doing, you know, business in Europe, Latin America, Asia, PAC. Okay. So, but you're talking about hiring people. So hiring somebody in China to manage that for you, there's no type of distributor that would handle that for you? Before you do that, when do you need to have somebody in your headquarters office that knows what they're talking about and what they're doing? So you, you hire that person first. You, you hire somebody that's going to manage your international division internally because a great deal of coordination with finance, logistics, customer service, uh, accounting, uh, you know, marketing, product uh, sourcing across the board needs to be coordinated before you start just selling your product uh, in far-flung markets around the world. Right. And so that makes sense if you're a larger company and you've got established operations and you've got enough money to put into it. But if you're talking to a smaller and mid-sized business, which is something like 95% of the businesses that export are small and mid-sized. So hiring, you know, maybe that's what it is, but how, how do you leverage the people you already have in-house to help expand? It's something in between becoming an accidental yeah. exporter and having a strategic plan to go international. And then there, therein lies the default. You know, here's our national sales manager here in the United States or our regional sales manager here in the United States, and let's throw it upon that person's responsibility uh, to start opening up markets around the world because, after all, he's involved in sales. Um, but if that person doesn't have the expertise or experience or quite frankly, the interest to go flying around the world and finding the right partners and digging into what makes sense, uh, then, then you're going to be stuck in, uh, it's just going to take a lot longer and a lot more painful. So why not just go off and hire somebody who's been there and done that? Okay. So that's why, like right now, I know you're consulting with companies to do that but you might be open if somebody's going to sweep you up to do that because they're in that stage. And then other people that I've met that, have, that do that consulting. So companies could hire somebody to focus on a certain company or hire somebody that understands the process to roll out the different companies. Right. Yeah. Quite, quite right. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, you need to get all those in, things in place before you actually start thinking about, oh, are we, how do we sell? How do we communicate? How do we market appropriately uh, into, the into the local marketplace? Because, you know, to use that cliche, one size does not fit all. So, Right. Okay. So back to China, when you were talking about online, yeah. you're talking Alibaba and JT and what was the other search engine? Or shopping? Well, well, yeah. I mean, those are the two major ones, JD.com. And, you know, within, within Alibaba, you know, the, the, the Tmall, you can be, there are multiple sites within the Tmall uh, umbrella. You, you, you have your own site uh, that you can list. Uh, so if you've got Nike.com on Tmall, okay, that, that's fine. Uh, and then also you have, uh, you go into their general site as well. So, you know, th those are the two dominant uh, sites in China today. Okay, so there are um, step grants that are available for small and mid-sized companies that mm. want to go international, and, and one of them was talking to me about um, a lot of clients that they have, one of the um, state organization that consults with uh, 
business owners who want to go international. And she said they have a lot of product, consumer product companies that want to go, but she doesn't have much information on how to advise them to get listed on these different sites. So it sounds like that was a little bit under your purview when you were managing it for the different companies. Well, yeah, the companies I worked with, we had subsidiaries in China, so so we're, we're you know dealing directly with uh, with, with uh, those organizations. But you know, if you don't have an office in China, that's fine. That there are many many companies that uh, sell online in China that haven't set up a wholly owned subsidiary in China. Uh, Tmall has offices around the world um, that work with local companies. Whether you're selling diapers or baby formula or you know, forks and knives or apparel, uh, and, and they will help you uh, get onto their global marketplace. And uh, you're, you'll be shipped. You don't need to set up a, a warehouse in China. You could be shipping from the United States directly into China. So, the, so they try to make it much easier from that standpoint. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So this, uh, this Tmall. So if you do Amazon and Tmall, you can hit the U.S. plus other parts of the world that use Amazon, and then Tmall will take you into China, which are two huge markets. So that would be a good place yeah, for Tmall to start. Absolutely. You know, absolutely. And Amazon is what in 15 different countries around the world. So uh, you can certainly plug into their network and then, you know, some of the regional online players in, in, in whether it's in Latin America with uh, Mercado Libre or Netshoes, um, you know, in, in uh, Japan with uh, Rakuten, uh, in Korea with Ku, uh, Southeast Asia, the Lazada group. So, you know, there's just, it's, uh, yeah, it's uh, certainly that's the path uh, to go. But I think a lot of companies are looking at the whole omni-channel uh, approach that's just not online. You know, you also need I don't, I don't think brick and mortar is dead, uh, so people are still shopping in stores, uh, but it's just certainly not a lot less than previous. So, What do you think is going to happen with the brick and mortar after the big QN's quarantine? Uh, maybe revenge shopping. It, it sort of happened in China. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> China sort of shut down for a bit in the earlier, earlier parts of 2020. Uh, things got better there, and uh, stores opened, so there was a lot of pent-up demand. Uh, for for consumers to go back and shop. Now, they're still shopping online, but um, I think that the, the culture of shopping in China is a bit differently different as well, where the consumers still enjoy going out and experiencing uh, the brand and, and going out to retail. So, yeah, there were some uh, luxury brands that recorded incredible uh, retail sales um, uh, a- after the reopen. So, yeah, that, that's, that's the phrase, revenge shopping. People's like, okay, I've been pent up. I can't shop now. I've I haven't spent money in the last several months now. I've, you know, if you look in the United States, savings, you know, of course, many people are unemployed, but savings rates have uh, increased dramatically uh, over the last few uh, few months. So uh, what are the people going to be doing that with that money? So, yeah. So, so they won't so, put it away for retirement or use this as uh, an opportunity to save what they're supposed to. They're just going to go out and revenge shop. <laughs> having, having said that, you know, 2020, we did see a lot of, uh, bankruptcies or filing for uh, yeah. uh, Chapter 11. You know, I mean, here in Boston, we saw the Barneys uh, close. Well, that was Barneys uh, nationwide, uh, Lord & Taylor. I mean, these are big retailers that uh, closed their doors. You had a number of brands that shot, that, that filed for uh, restructuring of the debt, whether it was uh, Forever 21 or Brooks Brothers. I mean, we can go mm. on and on. And uh, certainly, you know, old-time retailers like Sears and J.C. JCPenney's, they're, they're, they're struggling. I mean, they have sizable online businesses, but, you know, what, what, is, what, what, is, their, what is their hook? And, and, and that's the challenge. Wow. You know, I've heard about all the different brands and retailers that have been struggling, but for you to, have, to list them off like that is, is just continues to be heartbreaking because I've also, I sit on the yeah. um, diversity uh, board for the Greater Boston Convention and Visitor Bureau, and we've been talking a lot about the hotels and restaurants and tourists and museums sure. and stuff. So you, once you add all those brands in to all that tourism area, it's just it's heartbreaking to for the. It, it really is, and I mean those are big companies. And how about the mom and pop retailers? I mean, take yeah. a walk down Newberry Street, uh, and you know it. it it, it's there's just a lot of empty storefronts on Newberry Street today, mm-hmm. and and the vast majority of those are you know mom and pop entrepreneurs, and uh, they really had a hard time 
uh, staying open, maybe as long as the, the, the national brand as well. So we've been talking about, I can't call them mistakes because they were so far out of control of the business owners, but you did mention mistakes and learning from mistakes. And we joked about, oh, you know how there's so many of them. Let's, let's hear some of the mistakes you've seen. <laughs> and what can we learn from them? Well, you know, I'm going to take a step back here, Wendy. You know, the, the way most companies work, you've got a vice president of global marketing and you've got a new campaign and you've got a new tagline uh, it, and, uh, and you want to, you've developed that, uh, you've tested that with consumers in the United States and we got a thumbs up and now this will be our global campaign. Well, did you talk to anybody in Japan? Did you talk to anybody in France? Well, you know, the consumers here liked it. So, you know, all we need to do is translate it. And we know we need to translate it because we do know that not everybody speaks English uh, around the world. And so, well, we can get it translated. Well, therein lies the issues, right? You, you could be use your Google translator or you can hire a poor international. Uh, there's many ways about doing that. But even before you decided to confirm what your campaign is and your tagline and your strategy, did you actually have a discussion with your, you know, your, your partners, your offices around the world? And, and now that doesn't mean you're talking, to, you know, you got to fish where the fish are. So you, you can't talk to everybody and get their opinion. You go after the major markets and that's no offense to anybody that's, you know, not in a sizable market, but you, you just got to resonate with those, with, with those, with those consumers. So um, yeah, I'll, I'll give you a story and, and I'll, I'll embarrass my people, uh, my old colleagues at Columbia Sportswear. We came up with a tagline years ago and it was trying stuff since 1938. Trying stuff. Stuff. Yeah. And the whole report, the whole background to this, oh, you know, we experiment, we tinker, we, we try new things. We're exploring different concepts uh, to keep you warmer and drier. Um, so yeah. So around the world, people understood trying. Mm -hmm. get the word trying. Stuff had really different connotations when people translate. They understood it in English, but when they translated it, stuff had really different meanings. Um, you know, in Europe, it really meant, uh, depending on the country, but it meant garbage or junk. So <laughs> garbage or junk. Uh, the people in Australia thought that was really funny because stuff was slang for marijuana. Huh. So, okay, great. You're funny. <laughs> so, you know, it, uh, the people in Japan, I remember clearly, you know, we were in a meeting and they had these little devices where they type in the English and it types out the Japanese and stuff came out. And, you know, that stuff, things you put into a pillow, stuff that you put into a couch or <laughs> stuff you put into a turkey. And so they, it was completely uh, something that they didn't understand. So that's great. It, it worked with your consumer research groups in the United States. And, uh, but, you know, it just the concept of that didn't fly over so well uh, outside the United States. So, you know, so those are simple things. The tagline is long gone at Columbia Sportswear. But I think that's just a case in point where, you know, it, it, it's, again, not, one size does not fit all. It, it applies to apparel sizes and it applies to these concepts um, as well. So, so what's the lesson learned? It's, you know, you need to bring in and vet these ideas with your major uh, local partners around the world to, you know, does this make sense? And, um, and, and invariably what happens, Wendy, is that the people responsible in the international markets, uh, whether they're at headquarters or in Europe, Asia, Latin America, if they agree to it and they say, yes, that's going to work here, then, then, then those marketing managers get a thumbs up. Oh, they get it. They're on board. They're good with it. So, so they're a good employee. But, but if you're the one who says, well, time out, that's not going to work here. And, and these are the reasons why uh, you're just being difficult. You know, they don't, you know, and th those, th th those French, they, they just don't get it. All those people in Shanghai, they just don't get it. They're, they're being difficult. You know, they're a team player. Well, yeah. what, happen what happens if they're actually right? Right. Yeah. So, but, you know, your global head of marketing or the people responsible for implementing this out globally don't want to hear that. You know, they just want to hear that this makes sense and you're going to go with it. And if it doesn't work later on, 
and sales don't actually develop, then it's, uh, you know, oh, well, the product wasn't right or the salespeople weren't very smart. <laughs> you know, so, so that's, that's sort of always that triangle between marketing, product, and sales, you know, so. Right. Yeah, it was interesting. A few years back, um, we did the tagline for Staples. So they did come to translation first, but we also vet, we specialize in marketing translation. So we're also making sure that it's culturally appropriate. And it was their tagline of make things happen. And they'd take the okay. things out, and it was make work happen, make play happen. Go. And then yeah. um, they had one that was make refrigerator art happen, which is American concept okay. of taking yeah. your kid's art and hanging it on the refrigerator. Well, the French translator looked at that and said, that's not a thing in France. The refrigerator's for keeping food cold. So that tagline's not going to work. So we could take it back to them and tell them, and they just decided not, you know, they had six or seven other campaigns that worked. So they didn't need that one, but it was a creative. And then the other thing we ran into it is they liked the bookends, which worked really well in English. Mm. The make and mm. the happen, make work happen. And you could take the thing mm -hmm. out mm -hmm. or the work. But that wouldn't happen when you're translating. So we also had to talk about that and how you would do that across languages to make it still, you know, have the punch but get the meaning across without the, the bookends. Absolutely. So, so the connotation of the, the thought process and the philosophy still resonated and still was translatable. Uh, and yeah. it, you know, it didn't have to be a word for word verbatim translation. Uh, you know, and, and sometimes you know, heads of marketing get really caught around that. No, it has to be exactly you know, translated verbatim. But uh, here it, it's the connotation of, 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 that, of that concept. Right. And um, yeah, and so there's a couple of things there. One is the translation. And you talked about, you know, the marketing team developing it and not bringing people in. And so here Staples knew enough that they had to get it translated by somebody that could culturally adapt it. And then in an earlier podcast with Patrick Nunes from Rotary, he talked about how they moved it up the development line so early on in the discussion of what would work. They had representatives from the, the different countries that could say, yeah, I see where that concept's going, but it's not going to work. But if we adjust it, so in the development stage, it, uh, Quite right. it's considered. The earlier, the earlier, the better. So. And then did Columbia or any of the other companies actually get to that point where marketing representatives were part of the development of taglines or concepts or descriptions? Yes, absolutely, Wendy. Uh, but th th that doesn't always resolve so many issues, all the issues as well, because, uh, you know, you get the people at the headquarters that sometimes take the I ideas and advice and sometimes they don't. So then you got the people in the regions or the country saying, why bother asking me if you're not going to listen? <laughs> Fascinating. Yeah. So then it goes back to the culture of the company. You know, it, it's no, you can say, oh, it's that person's fault. It's nobody's fault. It, listen, it, everybody's got limited resources. You know, you, you can't tailor make every marketing campaign to be different around the world. That's otherwise you're not going to have those synergies. Um, you know, you, you can't, oh, gee, they want to do something different in France. They want to do something in Japan. And all of a sudden, and dozens of, of markets around the world, you, you've got a different uh, campaign going on. You still need to have the true essence DNA of what you're trying to convey. It's just about how you go about doing that uh, and, and communicating that. And I think that's the, the gray matter between the black and the white of a yes or a no. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've been many meetings where, you know, you had those situations where you just, you, you, you come to a standstill. It's like, this is the campaign. We expect you, no, we don't expect you. You must comply with this global campaign. There is no other. And then you've got the other people from around the world saying, well, it, it's not going to work. You know, why right. invest money in this if it's not going to work? What, what, can we do something different? Oh, yes, no, maybe so. And then you get into all these uh, discussions. Uh, yes, that uh, sort of goes spinning round and round. Right. And that's with a company that's going to develop a global company. So you can either do it that it's top down from corporate, you're going to use it all the way down the continuum to let every country do it on their own. And I see a lot of companies do that. Like my distributor is going to do the translation. And as a marketing person, I just grimace and my whole body reacts like you've lost all marketing control there. 
And yeah, you're absolutely right. You're, you're absolutely right. So that there, there is somewhere in the middle where you absolutely, you're absolutely right. You need to have those discussions early on uh, at, at the concept stage and, and bring in, you know, the, the key players from the major markets to, to uh, that through that process of what makes sense and what doesn't make sense and how does that, how is that going to resonate with the local consumers? So, you know, Adidas in China, you know, well in, in, into the, Probably they were the first ones. Uh, people at Nike would probably differ, but they really in China. They certainly uh, were probably one of the earliest international brands to very much localize their marketing of using mainland Chinese athletes uh, uh, and, and certainly uh, shooting ads, uh, videos uh, in China, uh, as opposed to saying, "Right here, here's a campaign from headquarters in Germany." You know, translate it and use this. Um, so I think that they have a long history of uh, resonating with the consumers. Yes, it's a German brand. Yes, it's an international brand, but they understand uh, the mainland Chinese consumers. They're just about to launch their Chinese New Year uh, 21 campaign, the year of the ox. And, uh, you know, it seems like they really, yes, they've used their key opinion leaders and social media uh, influencers and celebrities. Uh, yes, but it's how you use those people in a tasteful way that resonates with the local culture. And I'm sure it was 100% conceived, developed, and uh, created uh, in China. And uh, so I think that, 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 made, that made a lot of sense. And I think that they're going, they've been successful and they're gonna to continue to win uh, in, in China by uh, understanding the local consumer and respecting the local consumer that they think and act differently and they buy differently and they shop differently. Right, so how do you, if you're a small and mid-sized company, how do you localize to understand that with limited resources? Like what were some efficiencies that you saw companies? Well, if you're a small company and, and you're working with third party distributors or agents or, or licensees around the world, obviously you're, 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 you're strapped just from, from a resource standpoint um, and, and on how you communicate your brand and your product. Uh, you know, so much is, of it has gone visual uh, with, with just digital streaming of, of uh, videos. Um, but, you know, there's still no reason why you can't have a conversation with your partners around the world. Hey, is this going to make sense or not make sense? Uh, you know, you and I have referred to previously Dolce & Gabbana got into heaps of hot water in China for doing something that they thought was whimsical and funny, but completely backfired on them and basically closed down their business uh, in China and with Chinese consumers shopping around the world because it was lacking cultural sensitivity or certainly perceived cultural sensitivity. So, you know, it's, it's, you're just going to communicate this and, uh, and be early on in that process. So, but it, I, absolutely with small, medium-sized companies, it, it is challenging because it's, it's a lack of resources to do so. Right, right. So if you are listening, you can go to um, your internet and Google the Dolce & Gabbana uh, Chinese advertisement that flopped, and you can watch it. It's about using a fork versus chopsticks when you're eating Italian food. And I, I find found yeah. it a little offensive. You're not even Chinese, Wendy. I'm not even Chinese. Chinese so. <laughs> no, and that's not to say 1.4 billion people in China were completely offended by that, but certainly there were enough of them that people, you know, there. I think there were some protests out the stores. There was certainly a lot of online backlash, and uh, the true testament was that nobody showed up in the stores the next day. So right. So even even if they don't protest against it, walking their you know currency away and not buying can really hurt a brand. Absolutely. So you, you need to be very, so did, and I think when it comes to China, it's, it's that sensitivity of uh, nationalism and politics and the local sensibilities, things, you know, you, you know I'm sure a lot, a, lot, a lot of brands have used the word free. Uh, well, how that translates in China uh, of freedom, uh, you have to be very careful in China on how you use words like that, because certainly it, it's, it, you're running against uh, political issues in China about, you know, does that, are you trying to con connotate freedom and democracy? Well, that's a no-go in China. Uh, you know, so, so simple matters of that, so. Oh, interesting, tell me that a little bit more. So would that, like if you're giving away a free product, would that free word be offensive? Or no, is it more that, like that, set yourself free, live free? 
Yeah, yeah. absolutely. You know, and then uh, it depends on how that's translated. Zhiyou,、uh, you know, freedom. Okay, that's a common word in China, obviously. But if you're using it in your tagline, you know, you just have to be careful how how far you go with that. And、um, yeah, it just it's a、uh, it's a sensitivity. Right, right. So where we'd use that commonly in our marketing with "set yourself free" or "discover freedom" or you know, it's just you know the wide open, the freedom of the wide open road. That would be something that would be, yeah, fly yeah. free on these New Balance sneakers. <laughs> yeah, you just need to be careful. I mean, my point、yeah. is, you need to be careful on that. And obviously, politically, I mean, now it's it's just a hotbed of. of Political sensitivities, whether it's about Taiwan or Hong Kong or Xinjiang province, those are just the Dalai Lama. I mean, these are just hot buttons that are just no goes、uh, involving China. So it's just、uh, being aware. Right, right. What other mistakes did you see the companies you were working for make? Well, I, you know, you know, I think you know, it's it, it's quite interesting. I think it, it's you know, do you? I mean, I've been in companies where, well, why do we need to translate? Our competition's not doing it,、uh, you, you know. And then, you know, when, when we say, well, with trying stuff since 1938, obviously the Australians speak English, but you know, they say, well, do you really want to use that as a slang for trying? <laughs> nope,、uh, prob- 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 probably not.、Um, but no, I, I just, you know, in, in communications with business people traveling around the world, we as Americans, I mean, every language, every culture, we have our slang, we have our colloquialisms, and it's just being aware to not use those phrases when we're dealing,、uh, when we're traveling, when we're when we're communicating with people where American English is, is not their native tongue. Um, and you know, I mean, the, 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 these are sort of cliche things, but you know, you, I, I'd be in business meetings and just have to stop people and say, "No, you need to, you can't say out of left field because the people in China don't know what that means, or the people in France don't know what that means."、Um, so it's just being aware, and, and, and unfortunately, a lot of people aren't always aware that they're speaking to somebody where English is not their native tongue. So they take it for granted、um, that、uh, whatever I say, they are going to understand. So I think that's、uh, you know I I think I picked up on that at a, at an early age、uh, of of understanding that.、Um, but、uh, yeah, it's, it's funny. I, I've been on business trips with colleagues, and you know after a week, a, a colleague said to me, he said, "Bill, we've been traveling." Asia for a week now. You haven't spoken one grammatically full sentence since we arrived over here. And I said, "Oh, I didn't re- really realize that." And 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 the way you communicate, you don't need to sometimes be grammatically correct or speak in full sentence. Just get to the point. <laughs> so I, I I caught myself doing that. I I did, really didn't, you know. So a real simple thing is like, hey, hey, what time are we meeting in the hotel lobby for dinner tonight? Uh, you know, well, why use so many words? It's a、uh, meet dinner time. I don't speak pidgin English, but you know, it's just like how do you get get to the bare essence of what you need to convey? And like you know, when dinner time? You know, that 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 that's you know, instead of you know, you use three words instead of sixteen words. So,、um, but、uh, that is fascinating. That's so true because when you learn another language, you may not have the tenses right or the grammar right, but you can communicate so much just by knowing the key words. You've said that so well. You know, and and in English, one of the you know, we always use these double negatives.、Uh, We're we're not going to open that store, are we? That's a double name. We're not. So no. He's like, hold it. What do you mean, no? So I think those are the things that get non-English speakers really confused. Now I remember early early on in my career being in Japan and doing a contract negotiation with some very serious Japanese executives, and I was a young. Uh, guy at that time, and halfway through,、uh, we were progressing rather well with the contract. And I think I said something. I said, "Well, that's good. Our thoughts are running in parallel, so let's proceed." All of a sudden, the mood in the room changed to be very negative, and and, and I didn't. Re- and it wasn't expressed to me until 
dinner that night after a few rounds of beer and sake <laughs> that the gentleman said, uh, he said to me, said, it was very concerning that you said that our thoughts were running in parallel with each other. I said, yeah, that was a good thing. And, he's, and he was shaking his head and he actually took out the napkin and a pen and drew two parallel lines and said, well, this is my thought and this is your thought. And if we're parallel together, tell me, when is it that we're actually going to meet? So a rather innocuous thing to say, but you know, it sort of put a wrong mood with him the whole, the rest of the day. And it wasn't until dinner time after a few drinks that he wanted to say, well, gee, our, our thoughts aren't actually meeting. They're, they'll never meet. They're always gonna be running next to each other, but they don't meet. Obviously my meaning was completely different. So um, yeah, I think you just, and is that, that, so that's an American, that's a cliche. Our thoughts run in parallel, you think it is. So it's rather innocuous, but, um, yeah, it's, it, it's something that uh, just to be aware that the person that you're speaking with is not a native English speaker. And, and how simple is that? Right, right. But even when our thoughts are running in parallel, you wouldn't even think that that's m much more difficult. But if you take it back to our not, it's not our thoughts are running in parallel. Well, it's as simple as the one word we agree, agree. <laughs> and that just just get to the point get to know? the point um, yeah and I, I just I think just you know dealing internationally it's understanding and waiting uh, for and having patience and, and respecting the local culture you know I think a lot of American business people will go to Japan I lived in Tokyo for two years I've traveling there for 30 years uh, and and you know I think Americans want answers immediately mm -hmm. you know? so so I've been involved in, in, in presenting marketing campaigns in Tokyo to the local team and the marketing director VP will come over and show the storyboards and uh, say well what do you think and you know it, you're never talking to one Japanese you're always talking to six or seven Japanese and so okay then you know they suck their teeth in you know and they're <laughs> they're talking amongst each other and then there's just dead silence for a minute, two minutes. And for us that have grown up in the States, we're, there's nothing worse than dead silence. We're so uncomfortable with dead silence that we always need to fill that space with how did the Yankees do yesterday or how's the weather or, you know, whatever it is, whereas the Japanese, they're actually thinking. And then it's like, well, what's the answer? Do you like it? Do you not like it? And, and then it's like, well, we're, we're, we've discussed it and we're all thinking about it right now. And it's a very uncomfortable thing for some people to sit through and being in a room full of other people and they're just being silenced. And it's not like they're not thinking. No, they're actually thinking because they really don't talk and think at the same time so much. So as much as which is a very american typical thing now is that does that silence and thinking transition over to other cultures that you've seen i think it's i think it's a uniquely japanese uh phenomenon um, i don't want to stereotype too much here but uh no it, it, it's just a very common thing it, it's not like it's that's the way japanese communicate with Americans or farmers, that's how they communicate with themselves. It, it's just like, there's just always a lot of silence. There's a discussion and then they're thinking about it before they reply. But also you got to understand that Japanese person is listening to you in English. They're translating in their head into Japanese. And now they're thinking about, well, how do I translate my Japanese reply back into English to reply to you? So, you know, there's a lot of processing of, of information uh that that is going on and uh you know unfortunately also in japan being so very very polite sometimes if they don't understand something they don't want to lose face they may not ask what the stuff mean or what is a widget or you know what is what does that mean so it, it, it's it's just getting that trust and that rep that rapport, rapport, that rapport <laughs> well that's why it's nice to understand the generality so you can build rapport across the different cultures uh, yeah. they're there for a reason because you've seen it time and time and again and experiencing that and um yeah so so talk to me about the the sucking teeth the, tell me more about that uh, yeah, that that's a, that's a that's a Japanese trait. Uh, you know, it's like it's like the French pursing their lips, you know, mon Dieu or something like that. You know, and they have, 
it, it, they're thinking. It, it's not always a positive thing, but it doesn't have to be necessarily negative, but it's sort of, they're contemplating. It's like, oh, that might be difficult. And, uh, you know, you know I, I, and I think, you know, that, that well-worn, you know, stereotype, all oh, the Japanese, they said yes, but actually later on was a no. Well, they just didn't want to offend you. Yeah, you know, they, they don't want they didn't want to lose face. You didn't want to lose face, and they said, "Yeah, well, they lied to me." Well, in in, in that black and white sense, uh, you can sit think, "Yeah, they they lied to you." If you want to put it that way, but uh, that wasn't their intention. Their intention was to avoid a conflict and avoid you losing face or them losing face. It's, so, so how can you tell when a no is a no versus a? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're still thinking about it, you know, where the yes means no. There was a, a Japanese prime minister, I think in the 90s or late 80s, Toshiki Kaifu. And he made a speech in, in or it was, he made a speech. Uh, he, he didn't speak English, I don't believe, but it was translated. And then the reporters questioned him on what he said. And he said, my words were clear, but my meaning was not. <laughs> Which is really good for your rapport business. The words were clear, but my meaning was was not. So I mean, what the hell does that mean? So right. Uh, so so to, so to answer your question, when do you know it's a no? Uh, I, I, if I could answer that, I, yeah, I, uh, I I can't answer that. I, it's because I don't know how. So yeah. Well, I guess it goes back to look at actions, <laughs> not words. Yeah, and it's not. And I don't let's, listen, Wendy. It's not like you never get a no. It, 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 right. It, you know, it's just the way that it, they're just a very polite society, and then just that word "no" is so negative, or, or and so that that connotation of that. Uh, and I think it's generational as well. I suppose the younger people are a lot uh, freer to to express themselves than maybe the prior generation that's just a bit more conservative. So. Yeah, it was interesting. I lived in Taiwan in um, third and fourth grade, and there was some, you know, we were in Japan for a little while, we were visiting, but I, I can remember, and it's still kind of odd to me, is when we came back to the United States, if somebody asked you for something to eat, you'd say no, because you were kind of waiting to be asked a couple of times. And then as I got older, I, you know, and then I learned to say yes or no directly, as how you would do in the United States. And then as I got older, you know, I learned that that's much more of a cultural thing. I'm like, oh, no wonder for so long I carried on that it's polite to say no, and they're going to ask you again and again. <laughs> Three times, Wendy, is, is like the traditional way. It's like somebody offers you a gift or offers you something, you say no, and then they offer it to you again, you say no, and then they offer it to you again. And it's a, oh, then it's like, and then you, uh, and so it's just that, politeness yeah it's just about politeness humbleness uh whatever you want to call it and receiving a gift or a cup of tea or something to eat or whatever it may be yeah, yeah it's funny well, that you, you know it's well if you want to just say yes what's all this playing around for it's culture it's culture it's culture it's just like that being right direct is offensive to some to cultures outside of the u.s like we're so direct and so immediate and not patient that's taken yeah, we're not as direct as the Dutch, though. I mean, the Dutch yeah. are notorious for, I mean, other Europeans, like, oh, my God, the Dutch are coming. Let's go this way. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, they're notorious for being, you know, you got the Japanese on one end of the spectrum and you've got the Dutch on the other end of the spectrum. You know? And so, you know, and that's why the Japanese, it's, you know, varying shades of gray. And you know, speaking with the Dutch, it's, it's, well, it's either black or white. I mean, there's no beating around the bush, so. That's so funny. I've 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 heard of that before, but you're you put it on a scale, so it's a great way to visualize that. And everybody <laughs> just fall? sort of falls in between those uh, two extremes. And I know I just uh, offended a lot of Japanese and offended a lot of Dutch, but so be it. So I think they they, they realize that themselves. You know, why beat around the bush? Just don't waste time. Just cut straight to the point. So. Now the, the point uh, is people are different around the world. And if you just right. recognize and accept that to begin with as a premise, then, then you're already going well down that path. You know, how, how you're going to solve resource issues and translations issues and strategy issues is a whole different point. But if you don't already just recognize inherently that consumers think, behave, buy, and act differently around the world, then you're, 
You say, oh, well, it's the same product. We're selling this pen to, you know, Paris and Shanghai. What's the difference? Well, yeah, but th that's like where the commonality has stopped. How do you bring that to car? How do you bring that to market? Uh, and how do you make that resonate with, with local consumers? And so when I say one size doesn't fit all, that's, you know, a size large T-shirt is not the same size in Paris or is in, sh in, in, in Shanghai. And the, the way... I, we've seen it. You, you you go to Tokyo and you see the the, the vending machines and well, why can't I get a twelve ounce Coke? No, no, it comes in eight ounce cans or six ounce cans because people don't consume as much liquid in one setting. You know, and if you go to a Starbucks, you know what 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 is it in the states? The vente is about you know a foot long. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> around the world drinks coffee. That's you know, or, or a Seven Eleven Big Gulp. Nobody outside the United States consumes so much liquid in one sitting or within an hour. But uh, it's, it's funny. You know, people from around the world come to the States and say, you people must be very dehydrated all the time. Why is it consuming this stuff? So it's, it's an interesting observation. So. Yeah. I had a visitor from the Netherlands that said that exact same thing when he went to Dunkin' Donuts with us. It's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's just in America, more is better, right? So, yeah, more, 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 is, more is just more. So, more is just more. It's not always better. Yeah. 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 What suggestions would you have for a consumer products company? Like, could you lay out the six step or 10 step process of, of how to think about adapting your sizes or, for local markets? Uh, you know, I, I got a, you know, that, that's where you, it, yeah, so if you're selling t-shirts and you're trying to sell your t, you're an American brand and you've got your sizings here in the United States for extra small, small, large, up to extra large, and you want to sell those in Europe, uh, for example, you know, the, the Europeans just wear their clothing a lot tighter. Uh, and number ten, and number two, they're just not as fat. Uh, so, so, <laughs> so, 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 you know, as salespeople on the on the go to market side, you just need to show them that. Well, you know, if we're just going to sell the U.S. silhouettes and sizing, our sales are going to be here. But if you know, if we adapt it to actually what European sizing is, then our sales will be X, Y, Z percent higher. Uh, so you need to always justify that with numbers um, because it's a real pain in the ass for the product people, uh, the whole development team, the sourcing team to do something that's differently. Um, so it, it's always down to justification of sales um, and, and what does the competition do uh, and, and making sure that you are adjusting to that. And then the same in Asia as well. Uh, for some reason, Americans sort of like get it. Oh, right, the Asians are smaller, so we should adapt for them. But but, uh, but the Europeans, they look just like us. So tell me, what does it? Tell me, what does an American look like? Right. Is that you or is that me? It's both of us, right? So, uh, so <laughs> I've had those discussions before, <laughs> uh, which are which are you know, they. Yeah, it's it's a bit, it's a degree of uh, ignorance and uh, a little tinge of racism in there as well, if I don't mind saying. Um, but uh, yeah, so you, you need to make those adjustments, uh, packaging, sizing, and and if you, and if you don't, your your business is going to be limited uh, from that standpoint. Who would you, if you're a U.S. company, who would you talk to about how to adapt the sizing as you're going in? Well, there are companies who, well, number one, it, it's not, you know, it's not rocket science. You, you, you can, you can go over to Europe and you can go to Asia and you can get what Nike is doing uh, and, 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 and buy their sizes and, and copy their silhouettes. And there are actually companies that can help you uh, do silhouettes of different sizing. Uh, the same with footwear as well. Um, you know, people don't wear footwear the same or around the world, and thus you've got different not just sizing, whether it's size seven, eight, nine, or ten, but the lasts and the widths. Um, and there are some American brands that, that certainly sell widths. Uh, New Balance sells widths, Rockwood sells widths. I think Skechers has done a very nice job of promoting that they have different widths uh, for your for your feet from E to FG. I forget the terms <laughs> these days, um, but. Um, yeah, I'll tell you a story. I, I, I was working years ago with another footwear brand. I don't want to mention any names, but uh, they had very narrow shoes, uh, very narrow uh, fits and lasts, and they were not doing very well in Asia. Uh, and uh, we had presented the numbers that, you know, if you just make the slight adjustments like these other brands that you compete with, 
uh, then your brand is going to have an uplift in revenue. And the reply uh, from New York City headquarters, you should only sell our products to people with narrow feet. <laughs> that's, not, that's, that, that's not very helpful. But yeah, it's like, yeah, thank you very much. You know, or, or the simple thing is, oh, well, you know, we're going to take our U.S. large T-shirt and you just call it an extra large. No, that doesn't work very well either because nobody wants to walk around in an extra large T-shirt and think it's vanity sizing, right? Especially, yeah, so... <laughs> <laughs> so it's like that the simple solution isn't always the best solution so right right yeah that's it's so fascinating all right we're we're coming up to almost running out of time so i want to jump to some personal questions oh sure, and, oh, sure. Okay. okay so what's your favorite hit me, hit me, Wendy. you ready you ready we'll do it <laughs> your favorite foreign word tout to fait I can't pronounce it's French. Yeah, tout à fait. It's like that's like it, it's uh, you know, tout à fait. That, that's what it is. So it's okay. Yeah, tout à fait. Tout à fait. Tout à fait. Tout à fait. It's like uh, yeah, tout à fait. Yeah, that's what it is. Okay, that's all right. Do you know how to spell that? I don't know. I don't speak French. I just speak Latino. Tout à fait. That makes sense. And 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 Japanese. Daijobo. Daijobo. It's okay. It's okay. Ah. Daijobo. Daijobo. I can't. Daijobo. Dijobo, it's okay. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, it's fine. Dijobo, it's good. Yeah. That's so funny because two of my mantras over the past year have been um, all is well, which is kind of yeah. Dijobo. Uh, the, yeah, the Germans use it all. All is good. All is good. Yeah, the Germans use that all the time. So all is good. Yeah. All, all is good. And then uh, the yeah. other one I use is so all is well, and it is what it is. And that's tout à fait. <laughs> yeah, I think that would it. Yeah, yeah, it is what it is. So it's, uh, but you have to shrug the shoulders and purse the lips if you're in France. Right, exactly. Purse the lips, shrug, shrug the shoulders. <laughs> tout à fait. Uh, fit is kind of like party. So that it, to me, it sounds like, oh, that's the party. But, I, you know, I'll have to go look it up. I'm not my French is not my strongest language, but I speak a little. All right. How about your favorite vacation? Uh, somewhere on a beach and warm, especially when we're sitting here and it's uh, 28 degrees out with snow. So, uh, yeah, last family holiday was down to Turks and Caicos, which was brilliant. Ooh. So, yeah, that, that was nice. But, uh, you know, we're Hawaii. So we, we like the beaches. I, li I like the city as well. I love going to London, Paris, Tokyo. Uh, so so I, I do like big cities. Uh, and, uh, but what was your favorite? If you could go back and do one vacation uh, over, uh, the the uh, family holiday to Turks and Caicos was brilliant. Uh, it was two years ago. Uh, family holiday to Maui. Yeah. So there's a theme there: palm trees, sand, and beach. Yeah. So. Okay. Yeah, I went to I Turks and Caicos. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the kids didn't like the city so much because I, I like going to going to museums, and the kids, you know, they'd rather you know not go to a museum. So. Right, right. Yeah, so you balance it off, I hear you. But when the family's happy, it makes for a much easier vacation. Yeah, I love Turks and Caicos. How about your most rewarding cross-cultural experience? My family's Chinese. I'm ethnically Chinese. I grew up here in the United States. Um, and, you know, so, so I'm an Asian-American. I'm a U.S. citizen, and, I, and I've represented American brands almost exclusively uh, over the years. Um, I've actually been in meetings where I've showed up and, and, and I've had the other side, uh, whether they were customers, partners, whatever, uh, look at me and say, oh, gee, I thought uh, your company was an American company. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, do you, uh, all right, well, I mean, I'm not sure what, you know, I, actually, I do know what you mean, but uh, I prefer not to get into that, but can we get down to business? Oh, okay. You know, so you sort of overcome those things uh, from a personal uh, basis. Uh, but um, no, I, I think uh, having lived in Tokyo for two years and uh, been traveling there for many years, uh, listen, I, I, you know, on the degrees of acculturation locally, uh, I'm not quite sure a foreigner can ever be Japanese. And, and I've known people, I've known an Italian gentleman, an American gentleman that have been living in Tokyo for almost 30 years, you know, completely fluent in Japanese. Japanese wife, family, and, and they'll never consider themselves in tune with the Japanese. You, you either are or you're not. Um, and, uh, but, you know, I, I think I've uh, had uh, really nice uh, 
rapport and relationships uh, with, with the Japanese, uh, you know, it's, it's a d- degree of respect and understanding. And so, so I, I think, um, you know, breaking down those barriers and uh, uh, being successful in Japan has been uh, something that's, uh, yeah, I, I think it's been very gratifying. Okay. So even though you were only there two years and you know, no matter how long you'd lived there, you'd never be considered Japanese, but you really did feel yeah. welcome uh, and part. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I, I think so. And yeah. it, just beyond the, the, the veneer of them being polite, it's just, it's just, okay, do I understand to a high degree? Yeah, I think so. And that's just from time, uh, spending time with them. So, and, and, and listening between the lines. Where's your favorite place to do business? My favorite, uh, uh, Shanghai. Why is that? Just because, and, and because uh, you know, my, my parents were originally from Shanghai. They, they fled in 19, fled. They left in 1949. And, uh, and, and uh, my first time to, to, to Shanghai was as a teenager in 1979. So I, I've seen, you know, China to go from very modest, humble, poor, uh, beginnings from 19 from the early 80s I, I studied there for a brief period between undergrad and grad school uh, and, and today so I've seen this what is only described as an unbelievable uh, development uh, of its economy and its way of living and and things are just constantly changing in China at a very very rapid rate uh, of new ideas I and mean, the, the whole digital all things digital economy you know they're really at the forefront of digital marketing today and, and other companies around the world are following gee, what, what, what is being done in China. Um, and of course, it's just, you know, it, it's, it's an immense uh, uh, market uh, for, for many, many brands. So it's new, it's exciting. And I just have a personal history of seeing how far it's come from very humble be- beginnings in my lifetime. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. All right. Well, we're about out of time. What final recommendations do you have for our listeners? Read The Economist magazine. And, and why, I used to make all my staff read it. I make my kids read it. Uh, the vast majority of people outside the United States, and I don't care if you're English or Brazilian, Mexican or Korean, they just assume most Americans have no clue about what's going on in their country. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much true. <laughs> what's going on here? Well, there you go. So, you know, and so in interacting communicating engagement with people from other countries you know if you knew who their president or prime minister is or you know their capital or you know something about what's going on in their country pop culture whatever the current affairs you start to break down barriers that they perceive that you just rolled in from you know some cowboy movie and because uh, just the assumption is that you can't, you, you don't know anything about my country. And if you, and you know something about their country, then you start to break down those barriers. So, you know, The Economist, I've been reading it for decades. You know, it's, it's not just about economics, you know, it's, it's about the whole world. But, you know, there's no excuse today, Wendy. Everything is at our fingertips of information uh, about a particular country. So before somebody visits you from another country, before you go and get on a plane, go somewhere, there is there was no excuse before and there's absolutely zero excuse today to not google something about that country that you're going to so you have an appreciation uh, of that and i think that just helps break down barriers uh, of understanding to, to start with so i think that's a great idea and i may write a blog about it is what's the checklist of information you need to know about the company and what are the top 10 words you need to know? And then study that. That's your homework. Do that list, which would take five minutes to do. And then you're good to go to the country and you can have a decent conversation, you know, a decent, you can build a rapport with somebody. <laughs> it's the most simple thing to do. And when you break that stereotype, it, then people on the other side are like, Oh, wow. Wow. They actually know something about my country, and um, and, and I think my, my other suggestion is, I you know unless it's something really 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 bizarre and wild out there, eat what's put in front of you. <laughs> what's too bizarre or wild? I'd eat anything except for um, gluten because I have celiac and I can't. But yeah. <laughs> 
you know, but you know, what, what's what's bizarre to you may not be bizarre to me, right? But uh, you know, it's it's rare that something is put in front of you that's so unedible. You know, I always say the human stomach can digest a very wide range of proteins. So, um, but you know, it, it's you know, for many cultures around the world, uh, you know, food is very very important, and you know, it's if you're not. I think it's acceptable to say, oh, I'm not comfortable eating that. And you do it politely. I think that is uncomfortable. But, you know, it's, it's like, instead of saying something, what the hell is that? I'm not going to eat that. That looks disgusting. You know, and then, then you're, you know, you're being insulting and then you're being an ugly fill in the blank. Right, right, right. Yeah. So what's the wildest so thing you've bizarre out there? So what's, you know, you know, you could be in No, Korea, what's the most like, bizarre thing you ever ate? And I think we're going to have to end on that. Uh, <laughs> Uh, live squid, yeah, that's still sort of uh, moving around, and you put it in your mouth, and it's you know squirming around in there. So yeah, that's that, that's something people mostly don't put live things to eat. Yeah, so. oh, good for you. I haven't that's had that yet, so I'll have to try that yeah, next I, time I go out. That's that's a, that's a <laughs> Korean thing. So anyway, I'm 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 headed to South Korea sometime. Sound I've heard it's beautiful. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening today. I hope you've learned as much as I have. I think we have just touched the very tippy top of an iceberg of all the knowledge that Bill has. And so if you're in the consumer products industry and you want to go international, how can people reach out to you, Bill? Uh, uh, they find me on LinkedIn. I think it's under William uh, in parentheses, Tung, T-U-N-G. Uh, they, they can email me if uh, they, they wish. It's very simple. It's just uh, B-T-U-N-G-64 at uh, Gmail. So uh, pretty easy. Um, yep. Okay, wonderful. And I think if you, you do want to take a product international, you'd be worth having a conversation with. Um, if you learned something today or laughed or you've eaten live squid, please tell us somebody about this podcast and give us a five-star rating. If you're not going to give us a five-star rating, just reach out to me and PM me and tell me why. Always looking to get better. And uh, we'll look forward to talking to you next time. That's a wrap for this session. A big thanks to you for listening to the Global Marketing Show. Hope you had just as much fun as I did. New sessions launch weekly on all places you find podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and of course on our website. If you know someone interested in this topic, please tell them about us. Au revoir for now.